Chapter 13 of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mirando 07. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter 13 Ireland, 1649 1650. The Second Civil War had its counterpart in Ireland, where, in May 1648, Lord Inchiquin and the Munster Protestants threw off obedience to the Parliament and hoisted the royal standard. Ormond returned again to Ireland in September 1648, and by January 1649 he succeeded in uniting Anglo-Irish Royalists and Confederated Catholics in a league against the adherents of the Parliament. In vain, Rinuccini, the Papal Nuncio, opposed the League. The freedom and equality promised to the Catholic religion, the independence promised to the Irish Parliament, allured many even of the clergy to Ormond's support. They called on the Irish soldiers to fight for God and Caesar under his banners and engaged to supply him with an army of 20,000 men. In February 1649, Rinuccini left Ireland. The king's execution further swelled the royalist ranks, for whilst a portion of the Ulster Presbyterians openly declared for Ormond and proclaimed Charles II, the rest threw off all semblance of obedience to the Parliament. Only Owen Rowe and the Ulster Irish, dissatisfied with the terms of the treaty, stood aloof from the coalition, and, negotiating first with Ormond, then with the parliamentary officers, maintained for some time a neutral attitude. In Londonderry, Sir Charles Coote still held out for the Parliament, Colonel Monk held Dundalk, and Colonel Michael Jones, ever vigilant and energetic, maintained himself in Dublin. Jones had been made Governor of Dublin in June 1647, when Ormond gave it up to the Parliament. He had won a signal victory over the Irish at Dungan's Hill in August 1647, and could be trusted to fight to the last. But unless help came from England, the preservation of these last strongholds was only a question of months. It was not merely a question whether Ireland should be separated from England, for it was certain that Ireland, in royalist hands, would be used as a basis for an attack upon England. The young king's messengers announced his speedy coming to Ireland, and nothing but the lack of money hindered his journey. Already Prince Rupert, with a squadron of eight ships, was in the harbours of Munster. It was at this juncture that the Council of State nominated Cromwell to command in Ireland, March 15, 1649. The speech which Cromwell made to the officers of the army a week later showed his appreciation of the crisis. Your old enemies, he told them, are again uniting against you. Scotland had proclaimed Charles II. A great party in England was ready to cooperate with the Scots. All parties in Ireland were joined together to root out the English interest there and set up the Prince of Wales. If we do not endeavour to make good our interest there, and that timely, we shall not only have our interest rooted out there, but they will, in a very short time, be able to land forces in England and put us to trouble here. All the national pride of an Englishman rose up at the thought of Scottish or Irish interference. I confess, he continued, I have often had these thoughts with myself, which perhaps may be carnal and foolish. 
I had rather be overrun by a cavalierish interest than a Scotch interest. I had rather be overrun by a Scotch interest than an Irish interest. And I think that of all, this is the most dangerous. If they shall be able to carry on their work, they will make this the most miserable people in the earth, for all the world knows their barbarism. The quarrel is brought to this state. We can hardly return to that tyranny which formerly we were under the yoke of, but we must at the same time be subject to the kingdom of Scotland or the kingdom of Ireland for the bringing in of the king. It should awaken all Englishmen. At bottom, as Cromwell truly said, the quarrel was a national quarrel, and the question was whether the growth of English freedom should be checked by Irishmen and Scotchmen seeking for their own ends to replace the Stuarts on the throne they had lost. There was little real danger of this so long as the army remained united. There is more cause of danger from disunion amongst ourselves than by anything from our enemies. I am confident we doing our duty and waiting upon the Lord, we shall find he will be as a wall of brass round about us till we have finished that work that he has for us to do. But with all this faith in divine assistance, Cromwell did not underestimate the difficulty of reconquering Ireland and left nothing undone that was necessary to secure success. Cromwell refused to accept the command until he was certain of adequate support from the government, and after accepting it, March 30th, declined to lead his soldiers across the sea until he was provided with money for their payment. Parliament entrusted him for three years with the combined powers of Lord Lieutenant and Commander-in-Chief, granting him a salary for the two posts of about £13,000 a year, and giving him an army of 12,000 men, well-officered and well-equipped. The organization of his army, the collection of ships to transport it, and, more than all, the difficulty of raising money to maintain it, delayed his start for more than four months, and it was not till August 13th that Cromwell landed at Dublin. If Ormond had been a great commander, or if Owen Rowe had abandoned his neutrality in March instead of in August, every English garrison might have been taken before Cromwell's coming. Inchiquin, Ormond's lieutenant, took Dundalk and Droida in July, and Ormond himself blockaded Jones in Dublin. But Cromwell reinforced Jones with three regiments from England, and on August 2nd the garrison of Dublin surprised Ormond's camp at Rathmines and defeated him with a loss of 5,000 men. An astonishing mercy, wrote Cromwell, so great and seasonable that we are like to them that dreamed. Its result was that Ormond could bring together no army which was sufficient to face Cromwell in the field and was driven to rely on fortresses to check the invader till he could gather fresh forces. Into Drogheda, the first threatened, Ormond threw the flower of his army. Cromwell stormed Drogheda on September the 10th and put the 2,800 men who defended it to the sword. I do not think 30 of the whole number escaped with their lives, he wrote. Then, sending a detachment to the relief of Londonderry, he turned his march southwards and, on October 11th, took Wexford by storm. Some 1,500 of its garrison and its inhabitants fell in the streets and in the marketplace, and, as at Drogheda, every priest who fell into the hands of the victors was immediately put to death. At Drogheda, the order to spare none taken in arms had been deliberately given by Cromwell after his first assault had been repulsed. At Wexford, the slaughter was accidental rather than intentional. Cromwell showed no regret for this bloodshed. He
He abhorred the indiscriminating cruelties practised by many English commanders of the time in Ireland, and no general was more careful to protect peaceable peasants and non-combatants from plunder and violence. Give us an instance, he challenged Catholic clergy, of one man since my coming into Ireland not in arms, massacred, destroyed, or banished, concerning the massacre or the destruction, of whom justice has not been done or endeavoured to be done. But when towns were taken by storm, the laws of war authorised the refusal of quarter to their defenders, and on this ground Cromwell justified his action at Drogheda and Wexford. He justified it both on military and political grounds. He had come to Ireland not merely as a conqueror, but as a judge, quote, to ask an account of the innocent blood that had been shed, unquote, in the rebellion of 1641, and, quote, to punish the most barbarous massacre that ever the sun beheld, unquote. Of the slaughter at Droida, he wrote, I am persuaded that this is a righteous judgment of God upon those barbarous wretches who have imbrued their hands in so much innocent blood, and that it will tend to prevent the effusion of blood for the future, which are the satisfactory grounds of such actions, which otherwise cannot but work remorse and regret. Of Wexford, he said, God, by an unexpected providence, in his righteous justice, brought a just judgment upon them, causing them to become a prey to the soldiers who in their piracies had made praise of so many families, and with their bloods to answer the cruelties which they had exercised upon the lives of diverse poor Protestants. Cromwell, in short, regarded himself, in Carlyle's words, as, quote, the minister of God's justice doing God's judgments on the enemies of God, unquote. But only fanatics can look upon him in that light. His justice was an imperfect, indiscriminating human justice, too much alloyed with revenge, and, as St. James says, iraviri non operatur justitiam dei. Politically, these massacres were a blunder. Their memory still helps to separate the two races Cromwell wished to unite. From a military point of view, however, they were for a short time as successful as Cromwell hoped in saving further effusion of blood. It is not to be imagined, wrote Ormond, how great the terror is that those successes and the power of the rebels have struck into this people. They are so stupefied that it is with great difficulty that I can persuade them to act anything like men towards their own preservation. Trim and Dundalk were abandoned by their garrisons, Ross opened its gates as soon as a breach was made in its walls, and Ormond's English royalists deserted in scores. But in November, when Cromwell attacked Waterford, the spell was broken. Its stubborn resistance and the tempestuous winter weather obliged him to raise the siege, for the hardships of Irish campaigning had thinned his army, and a large part of it were, quote, fitter for an hospital than the field, unquote. Michael Jones, Cromwell's second-in-command, died of a fever, and Cromwell himself fell ill. Meanwhile, the inherent weakness of the coalition which Ormond had built up revealed itself. Between the Munster Protestants, whom Interquin had induced to declare for the king in 1648, and their Catholic Irish allies, there was a gulf which no temporary political agreement could bridge over. Before Cromwell left England, he had opened secret negotiations with some of the commanders in Munster, and his intrigues now bore fruit. In October, Cork expelled Ormond's garrison, and in November, Hall, Kinsale, Bandon, and several smaller places hoisted the English flag. 
thus by the close of 1649 all the coast of ireland from londonderry to cape clear with the sole exception of waterford was in cromwell's hands a great longitude of land along the shore wrote cromwell yet hath it but little depth into the country the task of the next campaign was the extension of english rule inland after wintering in the munster ports cromwell led his army against the fortresses in the interior of munster cashel cahir and many castles fell in february and kilkenny the seat of the irish catholic confederation capitulated at the end of march more and more the war became a purely national war between celts and english the last of interquin's protestant officers made terms with cromwell on the other hand the ulster army of owen roe stood no longer neutral and though owen roe himself died in november sixteen forty nine his celtic soldiers fought for the freedom of their race with unsurpassable courage and devotion owen's nephew hugh o'neill defended clonmel against cromwell and repulsed with enormous loss his attempt to storm it the ironsides confessed that they had found in clonmel quote, the stoutest enemy this army had ever met in ireland unquote. but though the garrison escaped by a skilful night march the town itself was obliged to surrender may tenth sixteen fifty by this time war between england and scotland was imminent Cromwell's recall had been voted by the Parliament in January, and a fortnight after the fall of Clonmel, he sailed for England, leaving his lieutenants to complete the conquest of Ireland. Ireton, who remained as President of Munster and Commander-in-Chief, captured Waterford, August 10th, but failed before Limerick, while Coote in the north defeated Owen Rowe's old army at Scarifolis, June 21st. There was no longer any Irish army in the field, and the war became a war of sieges and forays. At the end of 1650, Ormond left Ireland in despair. His successor, Clan Rickade, distrusted and disobeyed as Ormond had been, could neither unite the Irish factions for the last struggle, nor combine the scattered bands who still held out in their bogs and mountains. The nobility still clung to the House of Stuart, but the clergy turned for help to the Catholic powers, and offered to accept the Duke of Lorraine as protector of the Irish nation, if he would come to their defence with his army. In June 1651, Ireton again besieged Limerick, and after a siege of five months, the city yielded to famine and treachery. Ireton himself died of plague fever in November 1651, but his successors, Ludlow and Fleetwood, completed the subjugation of the country. Galway, the last city to resist, surrendered to Coote in May 1652. During the year, the last Irish commanders capitulated, and their soldiers entered Spanish or French service. So ended the Twelve Years' War. The contest had been unequal, but the failure of the Irish to regain their independence was due not so much to the greater strength and wealth of England as to their own divisions. As a contemporary Irish poet wrote, the gale are being wasted deeply wounded subjugated slain extirpated by plague by famine by war by persecution it was god's justice not to free them they went not together hand in hand ireland was devastated from end to end and a third of its population had perished during the struggle plague and famine said an english officer had swept away whole counties and in some places a man might travel twenty or thirty miles and not see a living creature either man or beast or bird as for the poor commons said another 
the sun never shined upon a nation so completely miserable it was not very difficult for cromwell and the english republic to subdue a divided nation but the task which lay before them now was less easy it remained to effect a settlement which would secure order restore prosperity prevent future rebellions and extinguish the feuds of race and creed in the last years of the republic and during the protectorate first under lord deputy fleetwood and then under henry cromwell this reorganization of irish government and society was carried out the main lines of the cromwellian settlement of ireland had been determined by the long parliament in all essentials the parliamentary policy towards ireland was simply a return to the traditional policy which since the close of the tudor period all english governments had more or less consistently pursued colonization conversion and the impartial administration of justice were the aims of cromwell just as they had been the aims of strafford the basis of the settlement was therefore a great confiscation of irish land and the substitution of english for irish landowners parliament had announced this policy in sixteen forty two when it voted that two million five hundred thousand acres of irish land should be set aside for the repayment of the adventurers who advanced money for the reconquest of ireland the pay of the soldiers employed against the irish and the reimbursement of the merchants who supplied provisions and other necessaries were provided for in this way by sixteen fifty three the debt which the parliament owed these three classes of creditors amounted to over three and a half millions accordingly in august sixteen fifty two parliament passed an act confiscating the estates of all catholic landholders who had taken part in the rebellion the leaders and originators were to lose all their land others two-thirds some one-third according to the degree of their guilt the rich catholic burgesses of waterford kilkenny and other large towns shared the same fate but the munster protestants who had revolted in sixteen forty eight were merely fined two years income in sixteen fifty three it was decreed that even those persons to whom a portion of their estates was theoretically left should be transplanted to connaught and receive there the proportion of land to which they were entitled in most cases they received inferior land in some cases nothing and in all cases the removal entailed great suffering even a still more sweeping scheme for the transplantation of all classes of native irish was for a time under consideration but in the end few but landholders were actually transplanted artificers and labourers were allowed to remain behind partly because their guilt was held to be less partly because it was difficult to remove them and because their services were needed by the new owners of the soil finally the confiscated lands were surveyed divided into different classes and distributed by lot amongst the soldiers and the creditors of the government by sixteen fifty six the process was practically completed and two-thirds of the land of ireland had passed to its new owners cromwell himself thoroughly approved of the principles of confiscation and colonization was it not fit he asked to make their estates defray the charges who had caused all the trouble it were to be wished he told parliament when announcing his capture of wexford that an honest people would come to plant here accordingly he wrote to new england inviting quote, godly people and ministers unquote, to leave their homes in america and establish themselves in ireland but with the details of the land settlement effected during his protectorate cromwell had little to do though sometimes he intervened in favour of persons harshly treated by the irish government 
Thus he saved Peregrine Spencer, the grandson of the poet, from transplantation, not for the sake of the fairy queen, but for the sake of Edmund Spencer's dialogue on the state of Ireland. Moreover, it was largely due to the protector that the scheme for universal transplantation was reduced to more moderate limits. The ecclesiastical policy of Cromwell and the Puritans was the traditional English policy of suppressing Catholicism in Ireland and propagating Protestantism. The difference consisted in the consistent vigour with which that policy was now pursued. Under the Stuarts, the laws had forbidden the Catholic worship, but the government had often connived at its exercise. Charles, in his struggle with the Parliament, had promised the Catholics at one time toleration, at another equal rights. Cromwell, as soon as he arrived in Ireland, announced that the old laws would be rigidly enforced. Catholicism, he declared, had no right to exist in Ireland at all. The priests were mere intruders. For their own ends they had instigated the rebellion. They poisoned the flocks they professed to feed with their, quote, false, abominable, anti-Christian doctrine and practices, unquote. Liberty of conscience, in the narrowest sense of the word, Irish Catholics might enjoy, for they were not to be forced to attend Protestant churches, but of liberty of worship they were to have none. I meddle not with any man's conscience, wrote Cromwell to the governor of Ross. But if by liberty of conscience you mean a liberty to exercise the mass, I judge it best to exercise plain dealing and to let you know where the Parliament of England have power that will not be allowed of. As for the people, he declared, what thoughts they have in matters of religion in their own breasts I cannot reach, but shall think it my duty, if they walk honestly and peaceably, not to cause them in the least to suffer for the same. Under the protector's government, therefore, priests were hunted down and either imprisoned or exiled. Some were transported to Spain, others shipped off to Barbados, and a sort of penal settlement was established in the island of Inishbofin. From persistency in these repressive measures, and from the active preaching of Protestantism, Cromwell hoped for the conversion of the Irish. He thought he saw signs of it even during his campaign. We find the people, he wrote, very greedy after the word, and flocking to Christian meetings, much of that prejudice which lies upon people in England being a stranger to their minds. I mind you the rather of this, because it is a sweet symptom, if not an earnest, of the good we expect. During the Protectorate, the English governors of Ireland made great efforts to propagate Protestantism. Independent congregations were founded in most of the great towns, and preachers invited over. In 1654, the commissioners in whose hands the government was appealed to New England for ministers. Sir, began one of their letters, we being destitute of helpers to carry on the work of the Lord in holding forth the gospel of Christ in this poor nation, being informed that the Lord hath made you faithful and able in the work, we hereby desire you to come over and help us. Assiduous preaching, argued Cromwell, together with humanity, good life, equal and honest dealing with men of different opinion, would in the end convert the Irish to Protestantism. The government also hoped much from the spread of education. In 1650, Parliament endowed Trinity College with the lands of the Archbishopric of Dublin and the Dean and Chapter of St. Patrick's. Trinity was reorganized and filled with independent divines, while the appointment of a number of professors, the establishment of a public library, and the foundation of a second college were also projected. When Archbishop Usher died, 
the officers of the Irish army bought his books to be the nucleus of the intended library. Like Strafford, Cromwell believed that the impartial administration of justice would make the Irish people good subjects and attach them to English rule. We have a great opportunity, he wrote, to set up a way of doing justice amongst these poor people which, for the uprightness and cheapness of it, may exceedingly gain upon them, who have been accustomed to as much injustice, tyranny and oppression from their landlords, the great men, and those that should have done them right, as I believe any people in that which we call Christendom. If justice were freely and impartially administered here, the foregoing darkness and corruption would make it look so much the more glorious and beautiful and draw more hearts after it. In the newly conquered country, the obstacles which made the reform of the law so difficult in England could more easily be overcome. Ireland, Cromwell said, was as a clean paper and capable of being governed by such laws as should be found most agreeable to justice, which may be so impartially administered as to be a good precedent even to England itself. Some improvement in these respects there certainly was. The Irish judges appointed by Cromwell were capable and honest, and one of the chief justices, John Cook, was a zealous law reformer but no improvement in the administration of the laws could reconcile Irishmen to English rule while the laws themselves were so little, quote, agreeable to justice, unquote. Justice, combined with forfeiture and proscription, and without equal laws, was a legal fiction which had no healing virtue. Equally futile was the attempted conversion of the Irish. The struggle against England had made Irish nationality and Catholicism identical terms, and a faith associated with spoliation and foreign conquest could make no progress in the hearts of the conquered. The only permanent result of Cromwell's zeal was an increase in the number of Protestant nonconformists in Ireland. Some nominal converts from Catholicism were made. A few landowners professed themselves Protestants in order to obtain a temporary respite from transplantation, and a good many Irish women who had married English soldiers passed as Protestants in order to elude the laws against the intermarriage of soldiers and papists. But converts of this kind usually relapsed, and the mixture of the two races, which the government could not prevent, profited Catholicism, not Protestantism. The failure of the policy of conversion entailed the partial failure of the policy of colonization as well. The families of the greater landowners established by the confiscations remained English and Protestant. The families of the smaller landowners, of the ex-soldiers who became yeomen and small farmers, tended to become Catholic in creed and Irish in feeling. How many there are, lamented a pamphleteer in 1697, of the children of Oliver's soldiers in Ireland who cannot speak one word of English. This comes of marrying Irish women instead of English. In the main, Cromwell's Irish policy followed the lines which Tudor and Stuart statesmen had laid down. In one respect, however, he was more original and more enlightened than either his predecessors or his successors. Strafford's economic policy had aimed at making the Irish rich, but also at keeping Ireland economically subject to England and preventing Irish manufactures or products from competing with those of England. No such jealousy of Irish trade warped Cromwell's policy. Its fundamental principle was that the English colony were to be regarded simply as Englishmen living in Ireland and entitled to the same rights as Englishmen living in England. 
I would not, said a speaker in the Parliament of 1657, have our own people oppressed because they live in Ireland. Accordingly, in the levy of any general tax on the three countries, care was taken that their respective shares should be equitably assessed. The same customs and excise were paid in Ireland as in England, and Ireland enjoyed equal rights with regard to foreign and colonial trade. However, as the native Irish and the Catholics were excluded from the corporate towns which were the seats of commerce and manufactures, the benefit of this trade was almost exclusively reaped by the English colony. Cromwell's object was to secure the prosperity of what he called, quote, the interest of England newly begun to be planted in Ireland, unquote. If it were overtaxed or in any other way overburdened, quote, the English planters must quit the country, unquote, and then, as he warned his second parliament, quote, that which hath been the success of so much blood and treasure, to get that country into your hands, what can become of it, but that the English must needs run away for pure beggary, and the Irish must possess the country again, unquote. With free trade, Cromwell also gave the English colonists in Ireland representation in the Parliament of the Three Nations. The Long Parliament had projected the Legislative Union of England, Scotland and Ireland, and had fixed the number of their representatives, but it was left to Cromwell to call the first united Parliament. The, quote, instrument of government, unquote, allotted Ireland thirty members, leaving the protector to fix the particular constituencies by which these members were to be returned, and thirty representatives of Ireland sat accordingly in the parliaments of 1654, 1656, and 1659. As Catholics and persons who had taken part in the rebellion were excluded from voting, the members for Ireland consisted entirely of officers and officials representing the English colony. I am not here, said one of them in 1659, to speak for Ireland, but for the English in Ireland. Outside the ranks of the new colonists, the union of the English and Irish parliaments found few cordial supporters. The older English colony preferred a separate parliament for Ireland. It would be impossible, argued one of their spokesmen in 1659, for the Irish to get their grievances redressed if they had to come over to England and apply to the English parliament for the purpose. Quote, I pray that they may have some to hear their grievances in their own nation, seeing they cannot have them heard here." Unquote. In 1659, the Republican opposition in Richard Cromwell's Parliament, moved largely by the fact that the Irish members were staunch Cromwellians, urged their exclusion from the House. Ireland, Vane argued, was only a province, and had no right to a voice in the government of the mother country. Quote, they are still in the state of a province, and you make them a power not only to make laws for themselves, but for this nation, nay, to have a casting vote for aught I know in all your laws." Unquote. The attempted exclusion of the members from Ireland failed in 1659, but at the Restoration, the legislative union with Ireland was the first thing to go. No law was required to repeal it, for it had never received the king's assent, and no voice was raised in its defence. English conservatism and Irish provincialism were too strong, and Cromwell's imperial scheme went to the limbo reserved for policies too wise for their generation. The natural consequence of the termination of the legislative union was the loss of the commercial equality which had accompanied it. The English colonists were no longer treated as Englishmen domiciled in Ireland, but as strangers and rivals. 
the navigation act of charles the second excluded them from american and colonial trade while two other acts followed prohibiting the export of irish cattle and provisions to england finally in the reign of william the third the irish woolen manufacture was destroyed and the ruin of irish commerce and agriculture was completed it was only cromwell's policy towards the english colony in ireland which was reversed his policy towards the native irish was still pursued so far as his policy coincided with the traditional policy of england towards ireland it was maintained so far as it was wiser and more original it was abandoned carlyle draws a picture of ireland as it might have been if the ever-blessed restoration had not torn up cromwell's system by the roots ireland under this arrangement he holds would probably have grown up into a sober diligent drab-coloured population developing itself most probably into some sort of calvinistic protestantism it is a baseless dream even in cromwell's lifetime it was evident that his scheme for the conversion of the irish was doomed to failure after his death the proscription of catholicism and the hopeless attempt to force protestantism on a reluctant people were still continued nor were they abandoned till eighteen twenty nine the new proprietors whom cromwell had established still kept their hold and only a very small proportion of the confiscated estates nominally one-third in reality much less returned to their old possessors at the restoration so the cromwellian land settlement survived its author to be his most permanent monument and to be also as mr lecky writes quote, the foundation of that deep and lasting division between the proprietary and the tenants which is the chief cause of the political and social evils of ireland unquote. end of chapter thirteen